Today, our guest is best-selling author Damon West. Some of you might know him as the coffee bean guy. I know him as a guy that's super authentic and full of a ton of energy. The thing I love about Damon is he leaves it all on the field, and he absolutely did that today on the podcast. If you've heard his story, please stay tuned. What you're going to find out are some things that he's never told before, some first-time stories. They were excellent, and it added to the flavor of the podcast. I hope you guys enjoy the coffee bean message, and I hope you guys enjoy this episode. Welcome back to the What You Want More podcast. Today, I am joined by an amazing guest. It's an honor to have you here, Damon West, best-selling author. Welcome to the show today. Quentin, thanks a lot, man. Thanks for having me here, dude. I'm so excited to be in Jacksonville. Man, we are fired up to have you here, and I also have my standing co-hosts, Alex Stewart and Daniel Halverson with me today. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us. All right. We're ready for it. Man, we got a great show today. This is going to be fantastic. You know, I think of motivational speakers. I think of people that write books that are motivating, leadership-driven, and the one thing that comes to mind is your story is vastly different. It's com- Actually, it's not even that. It's completely different. You know, you grew up with a Leave it the Beaver family, you know, perfect childhood almost, college athlete, and then turn into a, a kingpin in the crime world, if you may, and then arrested, jail time, and then now you're doing motivational speaking based on that life and based on the message that you're going to talk about today, the coffee bean message. How does something like that even start? Like, how do you get into the motivational speaking world coming out of that scenario? That is an incredible question for an incredible time to even ask it, because the answer to the question is, I have to go back to January 12th. 2017. So it's a, tomorrow is the six-year anniversary of this event that happened okay. that changed my entire life. It's one of those, like my friend Ed Milet talks about those one more stories, right? right. So here it is. This is why I'm sitting here today. January 12th, 2017, I've been out of prison for 14 months. We're going to talk about the whole prison stuff. I got sentenced to life in prison for organized crime. Uh, I made parole after seven years and three months, but I'm out. I'm out and I'm working in a law firm, which is a great job for a guy that's been formerly incarcerated. But I've got this dream of sharing this story with audiences, especially college football audiences, because I played college football, Division One college quarterback. I can relate to these student athletes. I've got this story about the coffee bean I want to share, but I don't have any access to college football coaches. They don't right. know me. I, had, I don't know them. I hadn't I'd taken a snap in 20 years, right? But a buddy of mine who works in the Houston media market he calls me up. I'm, I live 90 miles away from Houston. I live in Beaumont, Texas. And he says, hey, Damon, tonight is the Bear Bryant Coach of the Year Award. He said they're going to name the best college football coach in America. The eight best coaches will be in this room tonight. I've got an extra press pass. Do you want to go? And I'm like, man, you better want to go. This could be my big <laughs> shot, right? I'm going right. to get to meet these coaches in person. So I leave work early. I go to my parents' house because I lived with my parents at the time. I'm on parole. And and. And I, I get the better—I've got two hand-me-down suits at the time, Quentin. I get the better of the two hand-me-down suits. I put it on. I take a little bath in the sink and clean up a little bit. And, and I hit the road. From 90 miles from Beaumont to Houston, I'm practicing my elevator pitch because I finally get an opportunity to meet these coaches. So I get to the Toyota Center. He sneaks me in. I hit the ground running. And all the best coaches there, USC, Wisconsin, Penn State, P.J. Fleck, they're all there, man. These guys are all in the room. And I get to go up and meet these guys and shake their hand— and give them my pitch. Why you need to bring me in to talk to your team? And man, every coach I meet that night slammed the door in my face. They're all telling me, no, 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 no. Don't call us. We'll call you. In one hour, I've been told no seven times. Seven of the eight coaches Dang. in that room have told me no. It is a bloodbath. And I'm in the court of the Toyota Center, licking my wounds, feeling sorry for myself. And the voice in my head is screaming at me, go home. It's over, man. This was a dream too big. It's not happening. But I'm going to tell you something, Quentin. A long time ago, I quit listening to myself, and I talked to myself. And you should, too, because the voice mm-hmm. in your head can tell you all kinds of crazy things. The voice in your head can come to you out of fear. 
You know, you can listen to fear if you listen to the voice in your head. So I'm telling myself, no, you're not going home. You survive way worse than this. You survive prison. Now I'm applying perspective in my life because I know what a bad day looks like. Everybody knows what a bad day looks like. They just don't always apply their perspective. Right. So I'm telling myself, no, this isn't prison. You survive something way worse than this. That guy's going to tell you no to your face. And he's the last guy in the room to get to, the hardest guy to get to the room because his team had just beat Alabama two nights before for the national championship. Everybody wants a piece of Dabo Sweeney's time. So, man, I stalked Dabo Sweeney around this room. And I looked like a nut. I looked like a crazy person. You know, I'm hiding behind fake plants. I'm, I'm, I'm eavesdropping every conversation he has. I think security is going to take me away at some point. Right. But I finally get in front of Dabo. I give him my best pitch. And, and Dabo's, a, you know, Dabo's a patient guy. He's sitting there waiting for me to finish. And at the end of it, he's like, hey, Damon, you know, you got a card on you or something? So I gave him my card. And he's nice enough about it. He says, I'll check you out. And he takes off. You can tell. I mean, he, he wants to get out of there. It's right. a no. It looks like a no. feels like a no. Uh, but I felt okay about that last no because I left it all on the field. And that's what we learn when we're younger and when playing sports, you know. Give it your best effort. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. Or as someone very important to this story we're going to talk about today said, you don't have to win all your fights, but you do have to fight all your fights. Love it. So I went home that night. I slept like a baby. I forgot all about that night, to be honest with you, Quinn. Four months later, I'm at work at the law firm, and I get an email from the director of football operations at Clemson University, a guy named Mike Dooley. And Mike Dooley's email says, Hey, Damon, Coach Sweeney met you at a award show in Houston. He'd love to have you come talk to the team. Do you have August 1st open? <laughs> Dude, I got every 1st open, man. I got nothing going on in my life, man. So it's August 1st, 2017. I'm speaking to the, to the Clemson football team, the defending national champions of college football. And when I got done with my presentation that night, Dabo is up in my face now. And Dabo's a very high-energy guy. He's like, Damon, man, he's like, that's the most amazing story I've ever heard. He said, have you been, have you been to Alabama yet? I'm like, no, Dabo, I've been to Clemson, dude. I hadn't <laughs> been anywhere, man. He said, well, I just text Nick Saban from the back of the room. We'll see what happens. Dang. Landed in Houston the next morning for my trip to Clemson. A voicemail and a text message from the director of football operations at Alabama. We'll see you in Tuscaloosa in three weeks. You're on. Just like that, Dabo Sweeney has kicked open the biggest door to college football. And after that, it's Kirby Smart calling. It's Lincoln Riley calling. All these coaches are calling me because Dabo keeps giving out my number to them. Dabo believes in me. But the real magic in my life happened one year after my presentation to Clemson. It was August of 2018. I was at my desk at work, and my cell phone rings. And on the other end of my cell phone is this guy named John Gordon. Great guy. John Gordon. Massive motivational speaker and author. In fact, John Gordon right here, local to Jacksonville. Hometown. Yeah. yeah. I got, to, got to go to his house for the first time last <laughs> night. I've never been to his house. John Gordon, man, is a guy that I follow on social media at this point in my life, man. He's like my inspiration. He's the energy bus guy. He's yep. my energy bus every morning on Twitter. And I'm like, dude, John, I know who you are. How do you know who I am? He said, Dabo Sweeney. He said, I just got done talking to Clemson's football team, and Dabo pulled me in the office to tell me your story and about the coffee bean message. He said, Damon, the coffee bean message is amazing. He said, the world needs the coffee bean message. Let's write a book together. We'll call it the coffee bean. Let's deliver this message to the world. So the summer of 2019, the, the book, The Coffee Bean, comes out by John Gordon, Damon West. Becomes an, an instant bestseller here in America. Gets a global publishing deal attached to it. The book is now in most languages in the world. Chinese, Spanish, Arabic, French, Italian. I mean, all these other languages in the world have a book on their shelves called The Coffee Bean. But it all goes back to that one night in Houston, Texas, January 12th, 2017. When I've been told no seven times, and I'm thinking about leaving, I'm thinking about walking out that door because the likelihood that last guy is going to be a no is very high. Right. But I stuck around to ask my question. 
And it's what I tell salespeople. It's what I tell people coming up in the world all the time, people that are fighting adversity. Put in the work. Don't be afraid to ask. Ask your question, man. The only question you know the answer to is the one you do not ask. That is a no every time. Or as Michael Jordan says, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Take your shot, ask your questions, put in the work, because you never know what your Dabo Sweeney moment's going to be. And, I'm, and what I mean by your Dabo Sweeney moment is when you meet that person that believes in you and they decide to invest in you. And when you meet that person that changes your life forever and the lives of other people around you. I know to be true that growth follows belief. 100 follows belief. But no one is going to believe in you until you believe in yourself. You have to believe in yourself first. And then when someone else believes in you, that's when your life changes. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And I think that's just a, that's such a powerful message just in itself in the first 10 minutes of this podcast. But, you know, you think about that, like your Dabo Sweeney moment didn't just happen on the first whim. Like this was, this was years later. This was opportunities that were missed prior to that, that were said, no, no, no. You know, most people are going to talk themselves out of that final one before their Dabo Sweeney moment happens. We see it happen all the time with salespeople. We see it happen all the time with people that give up or, you know, even better they're They have this message such as you had your elevator pitch and it doesn't work. So they decide to change it. Yeah. You know, they don't stay consistent. Yes. They don't. You see this all the time when people do something marketing. They market, oh, nine days later, it doesn't work. Change it. And it's like, you haven't given it like, time to make its way through the system yet. Quentin, some of the best advice I've ever gotten, man, it comes from John Gordon. So much of my life, it's, uh, it's ironic. We're right here in John Gordon's backyard. Yeah, man, I feel like you should be here. This is the guy that <laughs> I wouldn't be here for it's not for John Gordon. You asked how did it happen. John Gordon invested in me and 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 changed my life because he attached me to his world and it's like shoot down to, or, into orbit in a red rider wagon you know a red rider wagon doesn't handle orbit well man <laughs> and like so the growth happened so fast and ex is it was just the velocity with which i rose because of being connected with john gordon being john gordon's co-author but john gordon gave me some great advice and everybody listening to this man you've got hopes and goals and dreams of, of building a brand here's the best brand advice i've ever gotten he said, Damon, this is when we first started out together. He said, Damon, you've got this amazing coffee bean message. And you've been going around talking about being a coffee bean. Even before he and I met, I was my message was be a coffee bean, mm -hmm. be a coffee bean. He said, Damon, it's going to take a while for that message to catch on. It just got a boost from the book, right? He said, that message is going to be your message. He said, you are the coffee bean guy. He said, but it'll only happen if you stick with your message. He said, do not change your message. He said, you know, don't get five years down the road and you think, well, this message hasn't taken off. It hasn't caught hold yet. It will. But you have to keep growing that message. Do not ever give up. Because the minute you do that and you say, well, let me try a different message. Mm -hmm. Well, now people don't know if they want to book you to speak or they don't know they're going to bring you in because are you the coffee bean guy or are you this other guy? There's other message out there. Right. Grow your message. Stick with your message. Don't ever give up, give up on your message. And he said, then one day you'll be known as the coffee bean guy. A day is today, man. That day is today. Yeah, absolutely. I'm the coffee bean guy. That's a great message. And, you know, that that escalation you talk about, you know, when you meet up with someone like that, that uh, what we like to call a sphere of influence mm -hmm. or an ambassador of your brand really takes off. You know, to your point, you know, I'm not saying it's overnight success by any means, but I'm saying you absolutely stepped on the scene here rather quickly. And it's just, it's accelerated. Like it, and there's not many people I don't talk to. I'm like, you know, David West, like, yeah, I think coffee. Bean. Oh yeah. The coffee bean guy. That's like crazy, they know man. exactly Seriously? the I promise you the minute wow. we say coffee. Oh, the coffee bean guy. Yeah. I've seen him on social. I've seen this. I've seen that. That blows me away, man. It's absolutely. So the branding works. The branding works. So let's talk how we got that message. Let's go into that real quick. So traveling back into, into Texas, you know, I love I, in your book, the change agent, 
you know, the changing agent, that there is, and I think you mentioned that was probably one of your favorite books. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's the book I put the most work into, man. I mean, it was, it was the, you know, the most difficult one to write because there's so much of the story I want to tell. But yeah, this is the one I put the most into, man. Well, you can tell. I mean, it's, it's well done. And, you know, immediately you learn about your family and you learn about your mom and your dad, you know, mm-hmm. two very strong people in your life. And your dad started you off real early understanding about environments. And understanding about how to adapt and understanding that, you know, standing for what you believe in. And uh, in the 70s, I believe 71, when he was a newspaper writer, you want to talk a little bit about what he had to endure and what he brought to your attention during that time? Yeah. Yeah. No, it is a tremendous lesson. Um, And and I share this with a lot of audiences, especially athletes, young athletes, young Mm -hmm. people in general. 1971, Port Arthur, Texas, where I grew up. Port Arthur is down in southeast Texas, a little blue-collar town, a little refinery town, predominantly black town. You know, I grew up being— one of the only white kids at slumber parties, birthday parties, sports, you name it. Giant melting pot of a city. My dad in 1971 is a sports writer, and he becomes the first sports writer in southeast Texas to put a black athlete on the front page of the sports page. 71 is the first time it ever happened. And when my dad put a black running back from Port Arthur Lincoln High School on the cover of the sports page, there's some people down there that lost their minds over that. They got mad. They were angry. They, they, they broke my dad's windows out. They would slit mm. his tires. They sent him hate mail. Growing up, I was born in 75, so I grew up a few—I was born a few years after this happened. But when I was old enough to read and comprehend, my dad goes up in the attic one day. He comes down with this box. It's got all these envelopes and these letters. It's the hate mail. He sits me down on the couch that day as a little boy, and he makes me read every one of these letters of hate mail. Now, imagine being a little boy. You're reading these letters, every nasty negative word that people are saying about your father and your mother because your dad put a black guy on the cover sports page. But my dad— He says, Damon, I want you to see what it looks like to take a stand and do the right thing. Because he said, sometimes taking a stand and doing the right thing, it means you're going to stand alone. But he said, it's always okay to stand alone as long as you're standing on the right side of history. I love that. Oh, man, tremendous Mm -hmm. influence from my father. I mean, when I go to prison almost a quarter of a century later, 25 years later, that's one of the bedrock principles I built this new life on. Yeah. You know, I, I love that. I've always was told, you know, doing the right thing isn't always necessarily profitable. Sometimes it's a hard decision to make and it, it's not, you're not always, you're not always going to make money or be on the winning side of that decision, but it's the right thing to do. Absolutely. So it sounds like your dad thought of that way before I was even born. So let's talk about your mom for a minute. Very, very strong person in your life. Very strong person from this book too. And a very wise person, you know, your mom, your mom was, uh, talk a little bit about her role in your life and, you know, kind of w- what she did for you prior to kind of the journey we're going to talk about. Yeah, she's, I mean, you know, my mom's the glue that holds it all together. And, and I mean, I think so they many- usually of, are, right? Yeah, so many of us can relate to that. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, a, a mother's instinct to protect their children or to raise their children is, you know, what I also learned when I went to prison is not everybody has a father, but most people have a mother. Mm-hmm. And my mom is a dynamic character in my story because, you know, she raises us in, in a home full of of, of love, opportunities, and support. God's at the center of everything, and we don't miss a Sunday of church. And she's got prayer plaques over the wall, crosses on the wall. You can't escape God in my mom's house. She's a very <laughs> devout Christian woman. And she raises us with those ideals. Later in life, you know, she's always been a big supporter of mine, but she was also very stern. And later in life, as we're going to find out when I went and I got sentenced to life in prison, she has a very consequen- consequential conversation with me Immediately after the sentencing is over. In fact, right. people that hear this conversation, they're like, man, how did your mom think like that on the spot? Now, my mom's a nurse. So my mom 
Nurses are special people, and I, you know, you you told me your wife works in, in, in medical too. Yeah, my wife's a PA, so I yeah, know exactly what you're saying. Yeah, my wife's a PA, so n- nurses have this ability to compartmentalize pain to get the job done. And this conversation I'm about to tell you about, I've asked my mom since I got out of prison, how did you think to say that on the spot? What were you thinking? And she said, Damon, I envisioned my son is dying on a gurney. He's bleeding out, and I've got to stem the floor. I've got to save my son's life. I've got to do triage. She described this conversation as a triage conversation, and this is what she told me. Right after I was sentenced to life in prison, I'm shuffled out of the courtroom. They put me in this little side room. It's got a bulletproof glass. They, they bring my parents in. They, uh, they, they feel sorry for my parents. I just got life. No one expected. I think the prosecution wanted, but no one was really like expecting that the jury was going to sentence me to life in prison that day. So they let my mom and my dad have five minutes with me right after the trial was over. And it's one of the most consequential conversations I've ever had in my life because my mom is telling me, she's like, listen, she said, debts in life demand to be paid. She said, but you just got hit with one hell of a bill from the state of Texas on this one. She said, but you did everything they said you did. So you're going to have to go and pay that mm-hmm. debt to society because you owe Texas that debt. But she said, you owe your father and I debt too. She said, we gave you all the opportunities, love and support to be anything you wanted to be in life. And, and that was how you just repaid us what we saw in the courtroom. That's not going to work. She said, we raised you in Port Arthur, Texas, a giant melting pot of a city, gave you a great moral compass, which you chose to not use. She said, so here's the debt you're going to pay to us. When you go to prison, you will not get in one of these white hate groups, one of these Aryan Brotherhood type of gangs, because your character is a minority in there. She said, it's not going to work. You were never raised to be a racist, and you're not going to start now. Mm. You know, guys, this is kind of like the whole thing about what we talked about my father a while ago. Right. You're going to take a stand is what she's Mm. saying. And you're going to do the right thing. So she says, no gangs. And she says, no tattoos. She said, which is not impossible, but it's asking the impossible as you go into prison. Absolutely, man. I mean, everything in prison that you see in front of you, man, is, 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 first of all, it's gangs. Everything is about the gangs and the race in there. But everybody in prison is tatted up, man. These guys want to tattoo everything in your body. She's telling me no tattoos. Man, I'm telling you, Q, when I when I got to prison, these guys wanted they they wanted to hit tap me up. I mean, almost daily, these guys hit me up. West, let me put a tattoo on you, man. I tell them the same thing every time. Hey, dude, I can't do it, dude. My mom said no. You know, it's like, <laughs> what else was I going to say? That's the truth. And the thing about it is, what was interesting about the dynamic of prison, you think about these hard guys, and these are some of the most hardened people you ever meet. But when you talk about your mom saying no, these guys respected that because, like I said. Not everybody has a father, but most most people had a mother in there. In fact, what I would learn in prison later on is that the busiest visitation day of the year in prisons, this is all over America, is Mother's Day. Mm. Wow. Mother's Day. Yeah. My parents lived about 10 miles away from the prison where I did my time, so they got to see me almost every weekend, and they they never gave up on me. They they held me close. They, I always had one foot in, one foot out of prison. They brought hope in on the weekends when they come mm. for visitation. But my mom had a standing rule— and she said, Damon, I will not come see you on Mother's Day because that table that we normally visit at, I'm going to give it to another another mother so she can see her kid wow. on Mother's Day. Yeah. So yeah. there was the one the one visitation weekend of the year that I never got visits was Mother's Day because my mom actively sacrificed that table for another mother that didn't wow. get to see her son so as much. Y- your mom's not really a very like, strong person, but extremely wise. Oh, extremely, extremely wise, wise beyond beyond. And, and that's the the conversation that day. It's May 18th, 2009. It was the same day I got sentenced to life in prison. She says, no gangs, no tattoos. She says, you come back as the man we raised or don't come back at all. 
No, that's an ultimatum. I mean, it's a line in the sand. Dang. This is like, and this is, like, I don't even understand fully at the time the big how big of the line of the sand is because I don't fully understand where I'm going. I went into that trial thinking I was going to get probation. I'm a white middle-class guy in America. I've never had a felony conviction. You know, I've got two paid attorneys. My, my family went and bought two paid attorneys for me. I didn't have a court-appointed lawyer. You know, the, I thought I was going to get probation. Right. I got life. Now I'm back, and, you know, after the conversation with my mom, she says, no gangs, no tattoos. Come back as the man we raised her. Don't come back at all. She said, do you understand this debt you're going to pay? And I'm like, yeah, mom, I got it, but I don't know, man. And so I'm asking all the guys that I'm doing time with in county jail. I've got two months before the prison bus comes to pick me up. How am I going to survive? What am I going to do? And, man, every guy I talk to, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, they're telling me the same thing. you got to get into a gang. You can't survive where you're going without a gang. They're telling me, you're going to the worst part of the prison system where everybody's got life. This, you're going to the life sentence building, man. The lifers, that's the hardest part. Get into a gang, you know? So that was the direction my mom gave me. It was going to be other people I met in life and their messages that helped me along the way. Here's, here's what I learned about life. You know, in my life, I can use an I statement. God has never just reached his hand out of my head and said, Damon, you're healed. <laughs> that's not how it happened in my life, brother. That's right. not how you're seeing the guy in front of you today. What's happened in my life, what continues to happen in my life is God has put people in my life when I was younger. These are my mom and my dad, their parents, their coaches, their teachers, in the community of Port Arthur that helped raise me. But as I got older in life, they took on the forms of different people. And some of those people we're going to talk about today. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about your time in, you know, at North Texas. You go to North Texas. You're D1 athlete. You're playing college football. You played three years, 5A high school football. You get a scholarship to go to North Texas, and you know you're a starting quarterback. You know, you, you maybe not day one, but you're in there starting at some capacity. And I believe it was the it was a Texas A&M game. Yeah. So you get you want to talk about a dream game, by the way, for someone like you growing up in Texas. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, what little boy growing up in Texas doesn't either want to play for the Aggies or against the Aggies? And man, I'm I'm 20 years old and I get the first start. You know, I'm 20. Um, you know, dreams of being a college football quarterback done that, check that box. You know, here I am. Yep. I'm living out my dream. My identity, by the way, has been a, being a quarterback. That's what I've identified with since I was a, a boy, and I was so good at, at playing football. But that game, September 21st, 1996, was what I call a fork in the road in my life. And everybody has fork in the roads. These fork in the road days are big days. Life knocks you down. You get back up. You dust yourself off. And you're at this fork in the road, and you're going to make a choice that your life goes a different direction. Make the right choice and go the right way, or the wrong choice and go, mm -hmm. start going down the wrong direction. On September 21st, 96, we, we're playing against a and I'm driving my team down the field. Third play of this game, I go down, and it ends up being the last play I ever play in college. I have an injury, and I never play college football again. And now my identity is gone from me. My, it's been ripped out from underneath me. I don't have a plan B. I've never I've never planned for this day. Everything that I've grown up with in Texas playing high school football and now college football is built around that identity. And when that happened, I got into drugs. I got into a lot of hardcore drugs because I could not deal with life on life's terms. And that's what I found out about addicts. Cause I'm an addict. I'm an addict. I'm in a long-term program recovery uh, called AA. I go to my meetings and I'll do that the rest of my life. But addicts, Addicts, we give up our goals to meet our behaviors. Mm. Addicts give up goals to meet behaviors. And you know, addicts can be anything. It doesn't have to be drugs or alcohol. Mm -hmm. It can sure. be food, money, sex, uh, the in Instagram, the internet, whatever it is, gambling, whatever your addiction is. Addicts give up goals to meet their behaviors, while normal people and focused and successful people give up their behaviors to meet their goals. 
So my early my early days of addiction started in college, cocaine, ecstasy pills. But I was a very functional addict. Graduated college in 1999, moved off to Washington, D.C., worked in the United States Congress. I worked for a guy running for president of the United States. And in 2004, I moved back to Dallas to train to be a stockbroker for one of the biggest Wall Street banks in the world. It was also going to be one of the biggest fork in the roads I ever met in life, too, man. At yeah. that job as a stockbroker, no fork, man. So when you graduated North Texas and you went off to Washington, you know, you went to change your environment, you know, to go to Washington to go work for for a congressman that you said was going to run for president, but that ends up being that ends up being an accelerator more than it ends up being, you know, a change of environment for the good. Yeah, because here's the thing, man. You take yourself everywhere you go. You know, wherever you go, there you are. You take yourself to every party. <laughs> and what I found out was is that with addiction, you know, I left Dallas, you know, in the year 2000 to run away from this this rage, raging cocaine addiction that I've got going on. In fact, I pack up a U-Haul, and in the back of the U-Haul, I've got a Tide detergent box, and I've got, you know, several eight balls of cocaine stuffed in, in case I get pulled over by the police, right? But— I take myself with me everywhere I go, and I was trying to run from this addiction. I'm like, if I just go move to Washington, D.C., then I'll leave the cocaine addiction behind. Right. Didn't work like that. Didn't work like that because I wasn't doing anything to actively work on my the disease of addiction. So, yeah, man, I took myself out there uh, to Washington, D.C., didn't jump it back into the cocaine scene right away, but it happened eventually. I found it again Yeah, because I was looking for it the entire time. That's what the disease of addiction makes you do. You look, look for it. And so you leave Washington after 9-11, and you come back home, as you said, uh, and you start working for, for a very high-end investment firm. And that fork in the road that you're mentioning is that moment in the parking garage, you know, in your book, where you're, you're essentially called out for doing drugs by someone that's saying, hey, man, we can't do it like this. Like, everybody knows what's going on. You got to, here, come to my trunk. Let me, let me show you. Here's another fork in the road. Let me show you something I got for you. Hands me a glass pipe. Crystal rocks in the glass pipe. I've never seen it before. I'm a cocaine guy. My thing is about, you know, I'm in, I'm in the blow. This other guy's like, hey, man, that's not the way. That's not the best way. This is the best stuff. And, uh, you know, my mindset, my belief system tells me, hey, Damon, you've got control of this. You, you, you're, you're good, man. You can try this stuff. Yeah. Man, it was the worst decision I've ever made, man, because meth, man. Meth is the most evil, most destructive, most addictive drug ever created by man. This stuff is made in a lab. It's made to get you hooked. I smoked it one time, mm -hmm. instantly hooked. And when I smoked it in the parking garage that day, that was the beginning of a cycle of me giving everything away. My job, my home, my car, my savings account, my family, my tethering to God. 18 months after the first hit of that pipe, I went from working on Wall Street, living on the streets of Dallas, and I become a criminal. I, you know, I've lost everything. I've given everything away, but I've still got, I've got this addiction now. You gave up your goals for your behaviors. That's it. That's yeah. it. I gave up everything for my behaviors. And that's what addicts do, man. Addicts give things away. I tell people all the time, addicts aren't necessarily bad people. They're sick people that do a lot of bad things. And this is, again, any addiction, man. You look at somebody, you know, somebody, food, food can be an addiction. Anything can be an addiction. And they're not bad people. They're sick people that do bad. And that's what I was. I was a sick person doing bad things. I broke into, I started breaking into cars. I broke into storage units. I shoplifted. Then it escalated. I started breaking into people's homes. This is the crime of burglary. It's a very serious crime. And, right. and I, I found out, especially from my crimes and, and going through my trial, that the people who I broke into their homes, my victims, I didn't just steal their property. I stole these people's sense of security. 
Yeah. Man, I don't even know if they can get that back, Q. I don't know. I, 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 I don't know. I can't speak for them. I think they'll probably have to live with that for the rest of their lives. I had a very negative impact in the lives of a lot of people. But after three years of committing property crimes against the people of Dallas, Texas, the Dallas SWAT team on July 30th, 2008, put an end to the Uptown burglaries. And it was the day that they arrested me. They took me down a dramatic SWAT team raid. And, you know, I tell audiences everywhere I go, July 30th, 2008, brother, that wasn't just the day I was arrested. That was the day I was rescued. I got oh, pulled wow. out of a situation I couldn't get myself in. My angels in life— they didn't have wings. That's not how it was in my story. My angels in life, they had assault rifles. They had shields. They had helmets. They came through the window. They knocked the door off the hinges to pull me out of the world, to pluck me out of that world that I was in and put me on a different path in life. And I truly believe that SWAT teams are coming for us all the time in life. They don't have to be a real SWAT team. You know, this is uh, things that happen in life. This is bad days, bankruptcies, divorces, mm -hmm. you know, uh, you lose your job. These are SWAT teams that come for us in life. But if we can look at these negative events and find the opportunity, the, the positive outcome in there, it's there somewhere. But the thing about it is, is so many people, when the SWAT team comes, they just give up and they, they lay down and die. And, and look, man, I'm not saying that that wouldn't have been me had I not faced some serious consequences for the things I did. The life sentence that that jury gave me, they sentenced me to life in prison that day. If they don't sentence me to life in prison, if they give me probation, or if, even if I get 20 years, my life turns out differently because I know that if I get a 20-year sentence in prison, I got to go to prison for about two years before I'm up for parole. But when they gave me life, they that was open-ended. They could keep me for the rest of my life if they wanted to. That may The day that I got sentenced to life in prison, May 18, 2009, I knew that something had to change and that something was me. Yo, thank you so much for choosing us today. We're definitely not done with our podcast, but we are going to take a really short sponsor break and then we'll get right back to the show. I've been in the lending business for 20 years. I've seen many different lenders. During those 20 years, I recognized there's a difference between being an originator and an advisor. And the team at Bank of England is full of advisors. They take their time to understand your needs. They take the time to structure a mortgage for you and your family and I cannot recommend them enough. If you're in the market to purchase a home, maybe it's a second home, maybe it's an investment property, or you're looking to refinance your current property that you live in, take a minute to work with the advisors at Bank of England Mortgage. They're a nationwide lender, and you can find your local branch at boemortgage.com, www.boemortgage.com, because it's more than loans, it's people. Thanks so much for letting us give a shout out to our sponsor. All right, now back to the podcast. You don't hear many people talk about being grateful for a 65-year sentence versus <laughs> a 20-year sentence, but when you hear the story and what goes behind it, it starts to make sense. I didn't say it that day, but let's put it that way. <laughs> so, it took a little while. Yeah, and so you're arrested, you're sentenced, mom says what she says to you, and you're put off into a minimum security before you're taken off to maximum security, and in that moment is when these other gentlemen were laughing at you and you know telling you you're going to have to join a gang, you're going to have to get tatted up, it's the only way to survive, get ready, and then you meet Mr. Jackson. Mr. Jackson, man. Changed your life. This is in Dallas County Jail. This is the summer of 2009. And the significance of this for the dates, summer of 2009 um, is 10 years to the date that I, 
John Gordon and I wrote the book, The Coffee Bean, in the summer of 2019. Wow. Wow. So this is a 10-year anniversary. This is like 10 years. Decade long. Yeah, it's a decades-long journey. This old black man named Mr. Jackson, uh, seasoned convict, been in and out of prison all of his life. But he's the most positive guy I've met inside that county jail. This guy had a smile on his face everywhere he went, man. You could knock the smile off of Jackson's face. And every morning, this old man would come up to my cell, to my bunk. He'd pick me up like a ray of sunshine mm-hmm. in that dark place with this positive energy. Energy's important, y'all. And he's telling me, he's like, listen, man, I've been watching how you're dealing with these knuckleheads and dummies talking about you got to get into a gang. He said, man, don't, don't listen to these fools. He said, you want to keep the promise you made to your mom and your dad, then let me tell you what prison's going to be like. So that's when he tells me, you know, the racial dynamic of prison. He said, prison's all about race because all the races want it to be about race. So he said, you got to fight the white gangs first when you go in there. After that, if you survive that, you fight the black gangs. Then, then you can earn the right to walk alone. He said, strongest man in prison always walks alone. And that's when he tells me, you don't have to win all your fights, West, but you do have to fight all your fights. The same lesson I would use January 12th, 2017 yeah. in the corner of the Toyota Center when I've been told no seven times. Mm-hmm. This is where I first hear it from. Now... But when he's telling me this, all this, he's, he's, he's telling me, you just got to get back up, man. I'm, I'm looking back at this guy like a deer in headlights, man. All this violence and terror I'm about to walk into. And that's when he's like, let me break it down for you a different way. He said, I want you to imagine prison as a pot of boiling water. He said, anything we put into the pot of boiling water is going to be changed by the heat and the pressure inside that pot. He said, I'm going to put three things in that pot of boiling water and watch how they change. A carrot, an egg, and a coffee bean. Now, he walks me through this allegory of the coffee bean, and he's telling me the carrot goes in hard but becomes soft. The water makes it soft. He said the egg goes in with a soft liquid inside, but the water changes the inside of the egg, makes it harden. He said their heart becomes hardened when you become an egg. But he said the coffee bean in the same pot of warm water actually changes the pot of warm water into a pot of coffee. He said the coffee bean was the only thing that could change the water. Everything else is changed by the water. Carrots are changed by the water. Eggs are changed by the water. He said, not the coffee bean. The coffee bean changes the water, he said, because it is the change agent. The name of the first book, yeah. the change agent. Hmm. And he's telling me about energy, man, your energy. He said, you either infect the rooms you go into with your negative energy or you affect the room. I love with your that. Positive. Infect versus affect. Q, couldn't be more simple. You're either the disease or you're the, you're the cure. You, you, you're one or the other. Right. And so... He's telling me about all this energy that you have that you put out. And he's telling me, man, if you want to come back as someone your parents recognize, you have to be a coffee bean. As a matter of fact, that's the last words he ever said to me in Dallas County Jail. Be a coffee bean. Four words that changed my life. Because this put me on a different path. You know, I, we were talking beforehand. like, And I, I think it was you that asked me. You know, was it immediate? Did you get it yeah. right when it happened? Absolutely. And, you know— the thing about it is, is like, right when I heard it, I remember thinking, man, this is like great. I can relate to that, man. Because anybody that's five to 95 years old can understand the carrot, the egg, and the coffee bean. But it would all change when I walk into prison, man. Prison, you know, when the, in the comfort of Dallas County Jail, and I say the comfort, it's ironic that someone's saying how comfortable <laughs> Dallas yeah. County Jail is. But county Jail versus the life sentence wing of one of Texas' toughest prisons, uh, night and day, man. And that's when it, you know, it became a very elusive target to become a coffee bean. Dang. So you enter, you leave minimum security to go to maximum security. And you've kind of been warned about what's going to happen in here. And it almost happens to a T the minute you get in there. You are approached. Information seeker comes after you. Yeah, Jackson. And then, and then it starts. Jackson told me. He said, man, look, he said, you're going to be approached first by a white guy because you're white. 
That's the way it's going to work. So the first guy that's coming up to you is not a, he's not a threat. He's an information gatherer. He's a scout. He's right. just going to want to ask you one relevant question. What gang do you want to be a part of? And he said, man, get this guy out of your face as fast as you can. No, but get ready. He said, because the second guy comes up to you, he's not coming to talk to you. He's coming to hurt you. He's an enforcer. He said, when this guy gets within range of you, hit him in the mouth as hard as you can. Just, I mean, he said, unload on this guy. He'd give him everything you've got. Get the jump on that first fight. And, man, the day I walked into prison, I'm in there less than five minutes, and I'm on the life sentence wing. I mean, and everybody's staring at you, man. I'm freaked out. Here he comes stumbling up. A little bitty ball-headed white dude, tatted up from head to toe. Even his eyelids are tatted up. He gets up in my face. He's like, hey, white boy, what family are you riding with? They call gangs family. A gang and a family not the same thing, man. And I'm like, man, just get out of my face, little dude. I'm riding with God. Please just leave me alone. I'm riding with God. And he laughed at me, Q. He said, God isn't here, white boy. He said, we kicked God out a long time ago. But we're here, and we're coming to get you. Get ready. Goes up the stairwell on the right side. Goes up and gets one of, the, one of the biggest white dudes I've ever seen in my life. Big, massive, ogre-type dude. He's pointing at me from the third tier, coming down the stairwell on the right side. I get a good look on this massive dude, huge, muscled up in veins, ripping out of his shirt, bald head with a swastika all around the top of his skull tattooed up there, Ugh. man. Dude, I got my back against the wall, and I remember what Jackson said. Hit him as hard as you can. And when this guy got within range, I hit him. I gave him everything I had. Man, I hit him in the mouth with everything, man. Every ounce of it, everything. And in 20 seconds, man, my first fight in prison was over because that dude beat me from one side of the day room to the other. My hit didn't even <laughs> affect this dude, man. Jeez. All I did was just make him more angry, and he just beat me from one side of the day room to the other. And I tried to fight back where I could. And that was what life was like in prison, man. For me, you know, the reality of prison, man— Look, man, I probably got in three dozen fights while I was in there for the first two months, and I lost 75% of those fights. I got my butt kicked all over that prison. I couldn't imagine. But I won. I won all my fights. Now we're back to the same thing Jackson said at the beginning. You don't have to win all your fights, but you do have to fight all your fights. And he told me this going in for a reason, because if we go in life, this is a life lesson story. If we go into life and we think we have to win everything we're a part of, and if we lose, it's a total failure— that's a terrible way to go through life. But if we go through life knowing that we don't have to win, we just got to get back up, learn the lessons from that loss, you don't have to repeat them, then maybe life is a little bit easier. Maybe we look at these obstacles and this adversity we're going through as teachable moments. And that yeah. was like the mindset that I had to change to just survive those first two months of prison. Now, at this point, in this first, you know, the, the first six weeks, eight weeks, are you are you devoted at this point? Are you are you you mentioned you had lost your faith, but at this point, have you regained it? Are you completely committed? Or are you still questioning that? Man, it was there. I got six weeks into prison. I got jumped on a Friday, and it was bad. I got my I got beat pretty bad that day, and uh, it was Friday. And the Saturday next morning, I woke up. I had this plan because I was done. I, they finally broke me. And this is the whole point of the beatings, the physical violence mm -hmm. is to break you, man. They're trying to break you. And I, and I got a story I want to talk to you about breaking in a little bit too. But they broke me at six weeks. And so I get up that Saturday morning. I've got a plan. I'm going to go to church. And after I get done with church, I'm going to come back to the cell. And I'm going to hang myself. I've got it all figured out. I know exactly how I'm going to do it. I've, you know, you, you find out real quick how you, you can check out of prison. A lot of people choose suicide. And so I go to the church service that Saturday morning. I'm in this service. They got 200 guys and 200 inmates in there. I'm just staring kind of dead at the altar. And uh, I get a tap on my shoulder. And it's this volunteer chaplain lady named Ms. D. Ms. D's a little bitty woman. She walks around with the cane. She taps me on the shoulder. 
She said, Mr. West, I need to talk to you in my office. Come with me to my office. So in the middle of the church service, I go to the office, and I talk to Ms. D. And Ms. D says, Mr. West, what's wrong with you? I can see that something's bothering you today. And I'm like thinking to myself, dude, we live in a maximum security prison, man. Everybody here is bothered by something, man. You can't live in there and not be bothered, right? Right. So I'm like, this, maybe this is a God thing, right? So I'm, I just unload on Ms. D. I start crying. I was like, Ms. D, I can't take it anymore. I tell her what I'm going to do. And she's just real calm. She said, you know, Mr. West, you, you, can't, you can't kill yourself. You can't give up on God. Man, the minute she mentions God, I get mad. I'm like, what do you mean God? How can God create a place so wicked and evil and sinister as this prison? And she's just really calm. You know, she's like, Mr. West, you're not the first person to get angry with God. And she said, the Bible's full of people that got angry with God, but they all came back to God because they learned the secret to faith. And I was like, Miss D., I need to know whatever that secret is. I need to know that secret of faith right now. She said, if you're going to pray, don't worry. And if you're going to worry, don't pray. She said, you can't have it both ways. She said, you're either going to let God drive the car or you're going to drive the car. She said, but Mr. West, the last time you drove the car, you parked it inside this prison. Mm. She said, so choose who gets the keys today, but choose wisely. Wow. Took the, took the suicide off the table. She explained the suicide to me. She got a little more de- in-depth than I got into the book, but she was telling me about suicide is a seemingly hopeless world. It, it only seems hopeless, and that's where you lose hope, and suicide becomes a viable option to someone that's lost hope. But hope is never really gone. It's never truly gone, but you have to look at life outside the lens of fear. Anything you look through the lens of fear, it gets a distorted image. So she's pulling me out of the seemingly hopeless world that day. Dang. And, you know, just kind of put perspective for our audience. We're talking, about a, we're talking about a prison that's all people 65 to life. They got nothing to lose. Nothing. They got nothing to lose. So I live on one pod. Q, I live on one <laughs> of the pods I live on. Seven buildings where all the lifers were. There's 432 people. I mean, mostly everybody in the building has a life sentence, brother. And so I live on one pod at one point, G-Pod one section. And G-Pod one section has 48 guys on it. Every pod has 48 men. And on this pod that I live on, 12 of those 48 men have life without parole. LWAPs. LWAPs never go home. They don't have a chance to go home. They are nuclear bombs walking around a prison because they have nothing to lose. They have no- In fact, some of the LWAPs that I got to know when I was in prison, I asked them, man, what are you going to, man, how are you going to do this time? Because they're like 19, 20, 21 years old, mm-hmm. you know, because I'm telling them, and the prison's going to, they're going to keep you alive. You're like a science project to them, man, because they got to give you medical care. If you get sick, they got to they got to heal you. If you get cancer, they got to try to cure it. Mm-hmm. You know, they they don't let you die. The medical part of prison, the iron the irony is you've got this great health care and you can't die. And I'm like, <laughs> but I mean, a lot of these guys, you know what their answer was to that? What's that? Oh, West, I'm not worried about that, man. When I get tired of doing this time, I'm just going to kill a guard so they can stay. Yeah, just so I can get executed. Yeah, Jeez. yeah. So I'm just going to kill a guard, or I'm going to kill another inmate. You know what my response was? Kill yourself, <laughs> man. Take yourself out of this equation. Why are you going to? And that's what the attitude. I mean, I try to explain this to the guys in there, and I still do. These guards that we're around, they're human beings. They're working people, man. They're right. going and doing a job. They got a family. They're going to go home to at the end of the day. Why would you harm someone that's just doing their job? The old timers in prison, man. The old convicts were some very intelligent men. They, they had a lot of information to give. It's like anything in society. Prison's like a society. The elders are the ones that pass the information along. And this one, one old-timer told me, he said, man, we are here to do our time, and those guards are here to do their job. Don't ever get it mixed up. Do your time. They're going to do their job. 
But the LWAPs are dangerous people, man. The, yeah. the life sentence building is a very dangerous place because it's a place without hope. Dang. So what, what was the change? So w- when did the change happen to where you got to stop fighting? You got to, to finally say, man, this is, I've, I've gotten past this point. Now I can move on. Or did you ever get to move on? Yeah. It's always, I mean, I, right after the thing with Ms. D at church, it was a few days later. And uh, it was a Monday morning, about six weeks into prison. I get up that Monday morning, and the only thing I haven't used is my athletic ability. I was blessed to be a, a great athlete in life, but, man, the rec yard's very intimidating in the life sentence building. Every sport is segregated by the color of your skin. Everything is about race in there, man. I mean, certain sports like hand, uh, sand volleyball, whites and Hispanics only, no blacks allowed. Handball court, all the races can play handball, but if you want to play doubles and partner up with somebody, your partner had to be the same skin color as you. Um, the weight stack, everybody in prison wants to lift weights, just like you see in prison movies. All the races can lift weights, but if you want someone to partner up with you, someone to work out with you, your spotter, they have to be the same skin color as you. You can't mix mm. the races. You can't even sit at a table and eat a meal with someone of a different race. That's mm. how big race is in the life sentence building. Wow. Six weeks into prison, I get up on a Monday morning. Now, remember, Miss D has told me, you got to figure this out. You can't. You got to let God do it. So I'm like, all right, God, I'm thinking about what I haven't used, and it's my athletic ability. God blessed me to be a great athlete, and I haven't used it because I've been scared. The rec yard's a scary place. So that Monday morning, I got out the nerve. I went to the rec yard, and I got into a basketball game. And the basketball court is run by the blacks. There's no white boys allowed in the basketball court. That's just the way it works. That's the way it works in prison. But I got myself in a basketball game that Monday morning. And this basketball was the hardest basketball I've ever played in my life. I mean, it's nine-on-one. It's not five-on-five. It's nine-on-one. My own teammates don't want me out there. But remember, I'm in the the phase right now where I'm fighting the black gang. So I'm like, you know what? If I'm going to fight them, I'm going to do it playing sports. And when you say phase, you've already gone through the, the Aryan gang at this the Aryan point. Gangs, now, you're yeah. the, and now, now you're onto the Bloods, the Crips, and, Vice and Lords. Their job their is, gangs. yeah, their job is to break me, man, because they've they've been directed by the white gangs. This guy won't get with his with his own race and his own kind. Break him. And then send him back to us broken, and we'll take care of him there. And all the gangs work in collusion with each other. That's sure. the way the gangs work in prison. The black gangs want me to get with my own kind. Because here you have this independent white guy walking around. That's how a racial war can break out. Yeah. You know, someone jumps on a guy from a different race. You're bad for the system right now. Bad for the system. Yeah. I'm going against the grain. I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. But I can't do that because my mom's told me I can't do that and come home. I want to go home one day, Q. So um, I get into the basketball game. But here's one of the things that I know. This is going back to growing up with a sports writer father and playing sports. In America, sports is the great uniter. Sports is the one thing that can bring this country together like nothing else can. I mean, seriously, before there was Martin Luther King Jr., there was a guy named Jackie Robinson. Right. Before you integrated lunch counters in this country, you integrated locker rooms in this country. Sports has this dynamic power to bring people together like nothing else can. So I went to the rec yard. I got into basketball. It took me about a week of playing basketball with these guys, but my gamble paid off. You know, the guys pulled up around me on the Saturday after that, that whole rec yard week started. And after the basketball game on Saturday, they're like, hey, man, you don't have to worry about the blacks the rest of the time you're in here, man. You're good with us. And, and that was it. That was the end of the, the violence. Or so I thought it was the end of the violence because they made a promise to me in that rec yard. The blacks in the rec yard made a promise to me that there's no way they can keep because there's nobody from another race that can keep their race off of you. If so, right. if one person from another race wants to jump on someone from another race, nobody can tell them not to. I mean, it would be a death wish for anybody to stop that. So about two weeks after the wreck yard, you know, after, after these guys have accepted me, 
we're two, we're right there at two months into prison. I'm coming off the rec yard one day, and this is like, you know, I'm feeling good. These guys have accepted me, man. They come get me every day to play basketball with them, and I finally belong, man. And I'm finally, I've relaxed. I've let my guard down. Coming off the rec yard, and my my cellmate Carlos. Carlos is about five foot four, little Hispanic guy, a little bank robber from San Antonio, serving 99 years for a bunch of bank jobs. Good guy though, real good guy. I mean, well, I mean, come on, man. You live with the lifers. You got to change your mind right, real quick. You got to change your perspective. You got to figure right. out who the good guys and bad right. guys are. Carlos right. was a good guy. Bad bank robber, but a good guy. <laughs> he got 99 years. He's a terrible bank robber, right. you know? So, but, um, but, uh, so Carlos is, is waiting for me in the pod and he says, man, come with me. So we go under the stairwell where nobody can see you. No cameras are. And he said, man, Wes, when you go to the shower today, blackjack is going to be coming for you. He's waiting for you. Now, Blackjack is the biggest rapist in prison. This guy's about 6'4", 260. Big black guy loves to rape white guys. That's why they call him Blackjack. Loves to rape white guys. And he's HIV positive. And he does it with a knife. He said, Blackjack is in the pod right now waiting for you to go to the shower. Man, I'm terrified. I'm like, yeah, dude. I was like, well, Carlos, man, I'm not going to go to the shower today. I know I'm going to stink in the cell. I'm sorry, man. He said, you're an idiot. You have to go to the shower today. He said, you're on the track and the train is coming. He said, if Blackjack doesn't rape you today, he rapes someone else and that's on you now. He said, so you have to go to that shower. You got to face Blackjack. And man, I'm terrified. I'm like, dude, what am I going to do, Carlos? I said, he has a knife. I don't have a knife. Man, Carlos pulls a knife out of his pants. I and mean, this thing is about this about a foot long. Jeez. You know, for the people that are just yeah. hearing this, it's about a foot long. I don't even know those little guys hiding this thing, man. <laughs> so he pulls this out of his pants. Lays it in my hand, and, and it's it's a blade, just like you see in the movies, man. Pre- right. Movies do a good job depicting a shank, man. It's a, a piece of steel been sharpened down on a razor's edge on one side, got a point on it, and the duct tape around the handle. Puts it in my hand. I hold this knife. I you know I, I toss it around for a second in my hand. I, I give it back to him. I'm like, Carlos, I've never fought with a knife. I don't even know how to fight with a knife. This dude's been doing this for probably 20 years. He is going to slice me up with a knife. There's got to be another weapon, another way. He said, there is another way. There is another weapon. He said, go to the cell. I'll be there in a second. So I go up to 45 cell, and I'm frantically waiting for Carlos. And he comes in, and Carlos comes in. He's got some tools in his hand. Don't ask me where he got the tools, but he's got tools in his hands. In Texas prison, there's no air conditioning. No air conditioning. I mean, it's right. hot, dude. It's, I live on the Gulf Coast of Texas, man. Y'all know what the coast feels like. It is hot, man. Summertime, it's humid and hot. Yeah. All we have is these little bitty fans that are supposed to keep us cool. So Carlos takes apart my fan. And inside that fan is a motor, a fan motor. It's about five pounds, just steel and wire. He takes the motor out of the fan. He drops it in a mesh commissary bag. And he starts swinging the bag. He said, this is your weapon today. And it's basically a medieval weapon, a ball and chain mm-hmm. flail is what he's created Jeez. in that sale. And he tells me exactly what to do. He said, go to the shower. It's a one-man shower. There's a change area on the right side. Go back to the back of the shower, turn the water on get back up to the front, wait in the change area. And when Blackjack pops his head through the door, hit him in the head with his motor as hard as you can. He said, you're not going to kill him on the first lick. You're going to stun this guy. He said, but once you stun him and you get him out there on the, we're on the third tier, once you get him out there on the third tier, he said, don't stop swinging this thing until you bash his brains out of his skull. He said, don't stop till you see brains coming out of his head. He said, you got to kill this guy today. Because here's what's going to happen. He said, either he's going to do something to you that you're going to want to be dead after it's over with, and he may kill you in the process of doing it, or you're going to kill him, and they're going to never let you go again because they're going to give you another life sentence, and you'll never leave prison again. In fact, he tells me you'll never leave this place alive. This is your day. Dang. And I'm like, give me the motor, man. Give me the bag. So I go to the shower. 
I do everything he tells me to do. I wait for Blackjack to come in, and, and Blackjack comes in. He pops his head through the door, and I mean, I swing back, and I hit him as hard as I can. I miss his head. He raises up. I miss his head. I hit him in the breastbone. Loud thud. Boom. Shoots out of the shower. Drops a knife on the ground. I'm on this guy. And I've got this bag, and I'm bashing it against his body. He's got his head covered up. I can't get to his head, but I'm hearing ribs crack under this thing, man. I drop the bag. I start kicking his head, man. I'm getting his. I'm, I'm going to kill this guy, man. Well, two of his gang brothers are watching this from the day room on the third down on the bottom floor. I'm on the third floor, and man, they're Mandingo warriors. These are guys I play basketball with, by the way. The basketball court scene comes back into play here. These guys fly up the stairs, man. They seem that's gone south on their brother, man. And they come up there they're like West. Don't lay another hand on this dude because now that we're here, if you lay another hand on this dude, we got to kill you, man. Right. We're, we're going to have to chunk you off the run. We're going to throw. The, sometimes they'll just throw you off the third tier. Just chunk you. I mean, it's, Jeez. yeah, you don't have a parachute. That's that's concrete, man. That'll, that'll kill you or break you pretty bad. And I'm trying to explain to these guys, man, this, dude, this dude came up here trying to rape me. And they're like, dude, yeah, he's a rapist. That's what he does. But he's our brother, man. You can't just kill one of our brothers, man. He's a rapist. He had a weapon. You had a weapon. It's over, Wes. We're going to let you live. Get going. So I grab my bag. I go to the cell. Man, I shut the cell door. And I, and I start crying like a baby. I ball up on the ground. I start crying like a baby in that cell. And, man, the adrenaline is burning off. I pass out. I pass out, man. And when I wake up, I'm starving, man. And I'm sitting there, man. I'm, I'm like, oh, man, it's time for chow. I got to go eat, man. I'm starving. I look up in the, in the clock. I'm like, oh, wow. You know, I'm looking around, but it's not chow. I've, I've, I've been out for like 12 hours, man. It's morning. It's morning. Yeah, it's the morning time, man. And they're rolling the doors for first in and out for the morning. And I'm like, oh, my God. And I'm like, I'm thinking maybe it was a dream. And I look over, and, and the bag is over in the corner. It's got his blood on it, not mine. And that's when I started looking. I was like, man, did I get cut? The dude's HIV positive. Right. I'm not cut. That's his blood, not mine. But I got to walk out of the cell. I can't live in my cell the rest of my time there. I got to walk out of the cell, and I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if someone's going to stab me. But when I walked out of that cell, it's an entirely different prison, man. I never had to fight again because everybody in that prison just saw what they've been looking for. The only language everybody speaks in a maximum security level five prison like that is violence. Violence is the only language everybody speaks. You become fluent in violence. Either someone speaks it to you or you speak it to them, but you're going to learn violence. And everybody saw that, that if I had to, I could take another man's life. I didn't kill him that day, but I banged him up really bad. And that was it. No one, no one messed with me again because I was one of the gang. I was one of the group now. I spoke violence. Never, never another fight again. At that point, it changed. Well, I mean, I got in a fight later on in prison. I I got thrown in solitary because I I stepped in in somebody else's mess. But no, no one ever challenged me again. I never had, no. And I've earned a respect to the point that I could leave stuff laying around the day room. And what you don't see, this is why it's ironic about prison. What you don't see in prison is thieves. Thieves. You would think that in a den of thieves, in a place like prison, theft would be rampant, right? Right. You never see theft. You never yeah. see theft in a maximum security prison like that. Here's, here's why. A thief is one of the most bad elements you can have inside of a prison. You live in a very communal environment. And if someone's stuff starts coming up missing, if someone starts stealing stuff, everybody starts looking at each other crossways. A yeah. riot can start. A war can be created between gangs over theft. You want a story about that? Yeah. Oh, people love prison stories. My mom loves prison stories. The last story was so good, I almost forgot where I was. <laughs> <laughs> Intense, man. <laughs> so, this happened on the pod, on the on the building I was on. So, um, there's a crip. He comes up one day, and his radio's been stolen. And he knows, or he thinks he knows, that this Aryan Brotherhood guy stole his radio. And so, 
He can't just go up to an Aryan Brotherhood guy and say, give me my radio back. He can't even confront this guy because they've got protocols for this. Right. Prison is a society. It's a microcosm of the, of the world of society outside. Every gang has a guy they call a speaker, and the speaker is the ambassador. A speaker has the ability to move from one gang to the other. He's a speaker. He can go into any circles, any dens in prison, and he's protected. You can't mess with a speaker. So he goes to the speaker of the Crips, and he says, hey, man, this guy, this AB guy stole my radio. I know he's got my radio. So the speaker of the Crips goes to the speaker of the Aryan Brotherhood, and he says, hey, listen, my guy's saying your guy took his radio. We got to get to the bottom of this thing, or this is going to get out of hand on us, man. This right. is how war can get started. AB guy said, yep, you're right. Let's get to the bottom of this thing. So they go to the rec yard, and they hold a trial. They hold a trial. They've got a, they got their own little judicial system in prison, right? So they call, you know, everybody up. They call both these guys up, state your case, what's going on. And each of these guys can bring witnesses to validate their story. So the, the Crip guy brings a couple of guys to say, yeah, man, I saw the guy in this area. Well, the Aryan Brotherhood guy is bringing guys in to say, no, he was over here, man. He wasn't over there. But in the midst of all this, you see a guy that's coming from one of the other buildings, and he's got a radio in his hand. The word got out, even the warden is involved at this point, that there's about to be a war breakout over a radio. And the word has got out, if that radio is on this farm somewhere, they call the prisons a farm, if that radio is on this farm somewhere, it better make its way back to this building because a war is about to break out. So one of the Aryan Brotherhood guys is bringing the radio from the other side of the prison. The guy, the Aryan Brotherhood guy, he stole the radio. And then when he stole it and he saw the heat coming around it, he got it off the building as fast as possible. But the guy that he sold it to for a couple of cigarettes over there in the other building, he didn't want that kind of heat on him. He didn't want to be an accomplice. He's got that contraband. <laughs> it's big time contraband. It's the hottest contraband there is Scrape in prison. The numbers man. off that thing. And the wardens, the, the officers allow these inmates to start moving around the prison to find this radio. It's crazy, man. You've got inmates falling out of place, running around. They're telling the guard, I got to go over there and try to find this radio. The guards are like, go get it, man. Go get it. And yeah. they, you're not even supposed to be there, man. But, <laughs> but no one wants the war. And so the, the guy comes in with the radio, and the case is closed. The case is solved. Aryan Brotherhood speaker says, tells the, the crypt speaker, don't worry about it. We got it. Be at the rec yard tomorrow. We're going we're gonna to take care of the, the punishment phase. The Aryan, Brotherhood guy, the Aryan Brotherhood brings their own guy out there. They put him up against the fence in the rec yard, and they beat this guy almost to, a, almost to death. They just beat him to a bloody pulp. I mean, everybody takes turns. This goes on for 10 minutes, man. Jeez. This guy is just beaten. to a, He almost dies, man. And what they did next is they took the guys, not just everything he had in his cell, radio, hot pot, fan, whatever he had in his cell, they took all his property and gave it to the Crip guys' restitution. But in prison, they have a society, they have a judicial system. That thief stepped outside of the social norms, the, the social contract in there. A thief is one of the most dangerous people in a prison because yeah. if everybody starts a war over what you're doing— Everybody wants to kill you. And the guy's lucky he didn't get killed for that. But that's one of the things I witnessed about how they handle a thief yeah. in prison. Checks and balance systems. And then they, you know, obviously the massive influence each gang has and the influence they have on new people that come in. But you were you were talking about influence earlier on that they have with with mice. Oh yeah, man. So this you ever, you ever see prison movies where a guy has a pet mouse, like Green Mile, stuff I, like yeah, that? Say, Green, Green, Green Mile's the first one that comes to mind. <laughs> but that's a little magical mouse, right? I mean right. that's like a, a story about a, a magic uh, but but they have guys in prison that have pets, different kinds of pets. I mean, you know, there's, there's stray cats running around all the time. Um, but so one of the, when I first get into prison, I'm walking around with Carlos on the run, and I'm walking by a guy's cell. 
And this guy's laid on the bunk and he's reading a book. And the mouse, his pet mouse, is laying on the bunk next to him, sleeping, just chilling. He's not chained up. He's not in a cage. The mouse is just hanging out. And I'm like, I elbow Carlos. I'm like, what's up with that? Well, Carlos gets angry with me. He grabs me. Let's go to the cell. And as soon as we get into our cell, he jumps on me. He says, never, ever look at another man's cell. That's called window shopping. All that can come from that is something bad because you don't have any business looking at someone's cell. The way they see it is like you're trying to steal something. So he said, don't ever look at another man's cell. He said, but well, listen, he said, stay away from the men that have the mice. And I'm like, well, why? I mean, Carl said, what's up? Do they have lice or something? I mean, was it, is something wrong with the mouse? Right. He said, no, it's the people. It's the, it's the way they get these mice to obey them. He said, they don't just do it to mice. They do it to people too. So he tells me how people get the pet mice. So in prison at night when the lights go out, there's roaches, there's mice, everything comes out at night, right? All the critters. And the guy that wants to get a pet mouse, he'll have an empty potato chip bag. They have a store inside prison. You can buy your coffee, your stamps, chips, whatever. The guy that has the empty potato chip bag, he puts peanut butter in the back of the potato chip bag. He lays it under his bunk. And when it's quiet at night and the mouse comes into the cell, he crinkles the bag. Mm-hmm. And the inmate can hear him. He reaches down and he closes the top of the bag up. Now he's got this little mouse in the bottom of a bag where all the peanut butter is running around frantically. And he'll take that bag with that mouse in it walk the couple steps over from the bunk to the toilet because that's what you live in a little 10 by 12 cell. You've got mm-hmm. a bunk, a desk, and a toilet. That means you're in a very close quarters for that toilet. But it'll take the mouse out of the bag, go up to the toilet, and throw the mouse on the toilet bowl and drown the mouse. Drown it. Now, and this is a metal toilet. The mouse can't gain purchase on that metal and get himself out. He's struggling, he's struggling, he's struggling, he's scratching, scratching, and eventually the mouse gives up to die. Because he's exhausted, just like any any creature is going to give up and drown. And as soon as the mouse gives up to die, the inmate reaches in, he grabs the mouse, saves it. Saves it in air quotes. Yeah, mm. saves it. Now, when he saves the mouse, he pulls it out, brings the mouse up to him so the mouse can smell him. He's blowing on him, he pets on him, feeds him, gives him water, lets him sleep. And then the next day, he wakes up and he drowns the mouse again. Pulls the mouse out and saves it. This goes on for a couple of weeks. Every day he wakes up and he drowns the mouse over Jesus. and over again until the mouse quits seeing that person as the tormentor and sees him as the savior. The mouse now feels like that hand that pulls me out, that's my savior. And I'm going to stay as close as I can to my savior. This is toxic relationships in life. Mm, you ever seen somebody that's the mouse in a relationship? Mm-hmm. Everybody yeah. can see that this person's manipulating you, this person's gaslighting you, but they don't see it because the person that's doing that makes them believe, I love you. I care for you. I'm the one that loves you. These other people don't. And that's what Carlos is telling me. Don't get around the men that have mi- that have the mice because they do that to humans too. Dang. Yeah, pretty well. That's, uh, that's insane. That's insane and cruel and just, uh, man. I mean, everything you would say anyways, you know, when you're talking about a toxic relationship. But dang, yeah. You know, when you hear it like that, you're like, ugh. People get drowned all the time by the person that saves them. Yeah. So that's a yeah, great point. And so you're moving out of, you know, uh, at this point, you know, you, you got your time of seven years, you know, and you come up for parole, you know, and there's a lot of things that happen in between you then and that time. You start to help educate people. You start to teach. You really start to say, hey, you know what? Like, this is my opportunity. And, you know, you want to talk about some of the the great things. We talked about a lot of bad things, but you want to talk about some great things that you were able to accomplish inside of your remaining time there. Yeah, man. I So I, I couldn't take any college classes, but because I already had a college degree, 
But what I could do with my education is I could teach other guys how to read and how to, how to write, get guys mm-hmm. ready for the GED test so that, that they could have a better chance in life through education when they got out of prison one day. Um, I would notice that when guys would watch TV, TV's real big in prison. It's like a babysitter, man. Mm-hmm. And every day the news is going to be on. You have to watch the news and you have to watch sports. One TV's on the news, one TV's on sports. Well, I mean, when the news isn't on, the the most common, t- the most frequently watched TV show in prison is The Young and the Restless. <laughs> That's what nobody <laughs> understands. Like, these guys sit around and watch soap operas all day, man. Mm. They, I mean, they, they can tell you anything Victor Newman's doing. And I, I think some of that is like when they grew up with their mothers and grandmothers sitting around the house, they right. watched the same soap operas. These soap operas, you know, you can watch soap opera 40 years later and it's still the same story going on. So, but when these guys would watch the news every day, when the stock report would come on, they talk about the Dow, the S&P, the NASDAQ. These guys would always look down at the ground, look at their feet. You know, they don't know what it is. I'm, I'm catching on to this. So one day I asked the guys in the day room, I'm like, hey, hey man, do y'all, y'all know what that means? And they get, first of all, they get offended. They think sure. I'm talking down to them. They sure. think I'm talking mess to them. Like, oh, yeah, smart guy. And yeah, we don't, you know, you're trying to make fun of us? No. But I'm seeing that there's an opportunity here to help you understand what all that is. So I start teaching them. I was a broker at one time. We're mm-hmm. training to be a stock broker until I failed my Series 7. But um, <laughs> but I start teaching them about the stock exchange. I t- teach them why we have a stock exchange, how people invest in it. You know, I, I don't get in depth of like puts and stays and stuff like sure. that because that's very complicated stuff. But I teach them the basics of the stock market and how it fluctuates, how it moves. And, and man, before long, these guys got so involved with this thing that I got the Austin American Statesman newspaper uh, every day. And once a week, they would have the stock ticker in there. These guys started their own stock exchange, and they got stuff off a of commissary. They're they're using soups and cookies and stamps and stuff to buy and sell and trade their stocks. Man, this was great. They were learning, man. Yeah. But you know, there was just different things I would try to do to try to help other people become the best version of themselves. But one of the things I did when I was in there is I always became that example, that bright shining light. The one Jackson told me in county jail. He said, you have a light about you that people are going to want to extinguish. And once I got past that period where people were trying to extinguish that light, that light became something that people gravitated towards because it brought hope. Right. You ever seen the movie Shawshank? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Shawshank. So now that I've been, been to prison, when I watch Shawshank, I ask people this question. When you watch Shawshank, do you think it's a story about Andy Dufresne, Tim Robbins' character, or is it a story about Red, Morgan Freeman's character? Now, there's no right or wrong answer. And if you watch the movie, you see this narrated by Morgan Freeman, and he's always talking about Andy Dufresne. But me watching him, after where I've been, the perspective in life, I think Shawshank is a story about Red. I'm going to tell you why it's Red's story. Red was a dead man. Red had given up on life. Red had already thrown the talent on life. Um, Like when Brooks, when Brooks gets out of prison, he makes parole. He gets out there, he lasts about two weeks, and he hangs himself, you know? And he writes a letter back to the guys in prison, tells them I can't take it out here. And Red turns to Andy and he's like, Red, I mean, Andy, Andy, I'm an institutional man. Andy, I, I don't think I can handle it out there. He even says the words to Andy Dufresne. He says, hope is a dangerous thing. Now imagine living a life where you think hope is a dangerous, hope's the thing you need most. And when you've given up on hope, you've given up on everything. But what did Andy tell Red? Get busy living or get busy dying. He's telling the story about the guy that came into his life and saved his life, man. Andy Dufresne saved Red's life and, and saw, he saw that there was something more to it out there. 
That's why I think Shawshank is Red's story. I don't think it's Andy's story at all. Yeah, great movie. Great movie. It's about hope. It is a great, great analogy there. Great movie about hope. And, you know, you kind of talk about, I've heard you tell so many different stories, especially over the course of the last couple hours here. But, you know, as you made that turn and as, as you started to give back and change the environment, you know, you started to become the coffee bean inside there. You know, I, I, I wonder as you got to parole, you know, you had hope, but you really didn't think you were going to get it as you, as you write in your book. But now that, now that you, you, that happened that quickly, you know, what, what was that like trying to maintain that, that good boy reputation between being granted that and then being released? Cause it sounds like there's gotta be some tests that happened during that time. Because, you know, I always envision like if there's a bunch of inmates that know you're getting parole and they're jealous as hell, they're not going to get it. They're going to do everything they can to try to keep you in there. Yeah. And that's what they do. I mean, because it, here's the deal. You can't have, once you make parole and you're waiting on a chance to leave prison, you can't have any disciplinary infractions because you lose your parole outright if that right. happens. So I've got a two-week window before the prison bus comes to pick me up to take me to this drug treatment facility. They're going to send me to a, an a in-prison therapeutic community for the last six months of prison. That's the parole option they gave me, one of the hardest ones they have. But in this two-week span, the word is out that I've made parole, and now my life is in danger. My li- I say my life because anybody that's got a beef with me, anybody that's got a, a, a grudge against me, they're going to come get me now. Because right. I can't fight back. I can't do anything to fight. If I fight back, I lose. If you fight, you lose, man. You can't win this battle. So I know that I'm going to have to stay in my bunk. I'm going to go to work at the chapel. That's where I work at the time. Come back from the chapel, take a shower, go back to my bunk. I'm going to stay in my bunk because your bunk is the safest place you can be in. Um, so I look at my locker and I ration out my food. I mean, I'm like eating two bags of peanuts and one bag of tuna a day, man, because I don't go to the chow hall. The last two mo- two weeks I was in prison, when I found out I made parole and I'm waiting on the bus for two weeks later, I don't go back to the chow hall again. I don't go to the rec yard. I never once go back to those places, man, because they're dangerous places for me because that's where I'm exposed. And, man, I literally I rationed my food out, and on the, the 13th night, coming up on the 14th day, the guard comes up and says, has a red, a red mesh chain bag. They call them chain bags. a red mesh bag. Mm-hmm. I said, West, you're on chain, man. And this is a guy that I grew up with. It's one of the guards there because I live right in the, the backyard of where I grew up. And, um, man, he hands me that bag and I started crying, man, because I knew that I finally made it off this prison. And he gets me out of there. He's like, hey, man, let's load you up and get you out of here, man. Man. Yeah. And so I'm, I make it off the Styles unit, man. And it was like, and I mean, like the pressure's building, man, because everybody knows that Damon's made parole. And there's a lot of people that have beef with me, man. And they're coming for me, man. The word's out, man. The knives are out, dude. Right. They're coming for me, man. But I made it off of there, man. It was like a God thing. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you make it out of there, man. And so we've talked about time in prison. We've talked about, you know, what that journey's like. And then you get out. And the minute you get out, your parents are there, obviously, to meet you as you get out. But your mom has some more wise words waiting for you. Yeah, man. This is like, my mom is, is incredible. Um, she says, uh, she says, I've got three things you're going to need to get through this life. And the first thing she hands me is my iPhone. Now, look, guys, when I got locked up, phones had buttons, man. I can't even get this thing to light up. I don't even know where the buttons, right? Right. She's like, Damon, I'll show you how to use the phone. And she's telling me everything a phone can do now. I mean, FaceTime. You get a video conference in your pocket. Um, next thing she handed me was my, my driver's license. I found a way. I found a loophole in the law. To, I found a way to renew my driver's license from inside of a prison. I haven't even driven a golf cart, man. <laughs> and Texas is like, yeah, we'll give you another driver's license. That sounds good. So she said, you got a phone. You can stay in contact with the world. 
You got a driver's license. You can borrow my truck to you for, for your own car. You can go anywhere you want. What are you missing? Now, look, my mom's a very spiritual person. I know it's going to be something spiritual because that's my mom. And I was like, Mom, listen, I'm good. I got the best relationship with God I've ever had. He's in the, He's driving the car. I'm just a passenger in it. And she's like, Damon, you always did talk too much. She, she said, put out your wrist. So I put my wrist out, and she puts this bracelet on my wrist. And this bracelet is a bunch of fishing lures all linked up together. And it's called a Fisher and Men bracelet. And I used to go to these Christian retreats whenever I was in prison, these ACTS retreats. ACTS is a, an acronym for Adoration, Community, Theology, and Service. And I told my mom when I was going to these retreats in prison that when I get out of prison one day, I got to find these guys. These guys are going to be my brothers. These guys are going to be positive role models. So she puts this bracelet on my wrist, and she said, Damon, all the ACTS brothers and sisters, the men and women that have gone through the ACTS program are in our community, and they all wear these bracelets to identify themselves with. So... If you see someone wearing a bracelet, they've been through the same retreat you've been through. When you were in prison, Damon, she said, you told me you wanted to find these guys. She said, so I've helped you out. I've signed you up for your first act retreat in the free world. And she said, in two months, you're going to go to your first act retreat. Go find your friends. And man, one of the greatest things I've ever gotten, man. My mom set me up on the right track. I went to this retreat two months later, and I'm around these men. These men, man, that have been through so many different things in life, you know, and they must have thought I was living under a rock because in a way I was. I was in this artificial world for seven years and three months. But these men share with me stories about their successes in life, but more importantly, they share with me about their failures in life. It was a weekend of authentic vulnerability, and Mm -hmm. vulnerability is a strength, man. They share with me stories about careers that were lost, marriages that failed, you know, things, things where they made the mistakes in life, so I didn't have to go make those mistakes too. One of the best weekends I've ever spent, best four days I've ever spent outside of a prison. And, um, yeah, that was my mom's last gift to me right when I walked out of prison, man. man. Incredible woman. Yeah, no, no doubt. I mean, and you know, you kind of, you know, you got a job right out of prison, which was very rare at a law firm that you mentioned earlier. And then from there, you know, after that, circling back to that Toyota, you know, uh, the, the, at the Toyota Center where you met all the coaches, I mean, from there, it's just kind of catapulted. Yeah, you know, I mean, I don't think there's a, I don't think there's a college team you haven't spoken to. I don't think there's a, a an NFL program that doesn't already have you on the books or you haven't spoken with. And companies galore just keeps going. I mean, you know, this story that we just heard couldn't be more of a 360 degree story coming full circle. Yeah, and I mean, uh, your your devout, you know, devotion to faith and your belief system and, and changing, you know, your environment, man. It's a you live it. And I mean, you're wearing the coffee bean shirt right now. You got two of them on. You got a t-shirt and sweatshirt on. It's cold as hell in here. But, you know, I mean, you live, eat, and breathe it, man. And, uh, you know, I, you know, I want to say this from the moment I first spoke to you in August, you know, I tell Daniel this story. I was like, I texted Daniel. I was like, man, you're not going to believe this. I just spoke to Damon West. And he was like, get out of here. I'm like, no, dude, I, the dude called me. I almost wrecked my truck when you called me on Beach Boulevard because you, you were just like you are here. Damn, hey, Quentin Harris is Damon West. And I'm like, what are you doing calling me? When you said that about John Gordon, I felt that same way. I was like, what are you doing calling me? But you were excited to come down here and you jumped right on the podcast, said you would do this. Yeah. And uh, your, your genuine, you know, your, I don't even know how to say it, your genuality, you know, is it, it comes right through. Even on the phone, meeting you in person, it's, uh, it's truly, uh, it's contagious, man. I tell you that because when I talked to you last Thursday, I told Daniel, I said, you start my morning every morning just talking to, to Damon for a little bit here because I was shot out of cannon all day long. Man, so. that's 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 a huge compliment, man. And look, I want to be that guy for other people, man, because I'm 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 that guy too, man. I'm the guy that reaches out to people still, man. I reach out to people all the time. Eighty percent of the time, people don't even respond back to me, but twenty percent of the time they do. And when someone reaches out to me, I always respond back. I control that part 
of my life still, and, and I want to always keep it that way. Good place to wrap this up is the secret to life, Quentin. And this is where this all comes full circle. The secret to life is servant leadership. Servant leadership is helping other people reach their goals in life. Helping to, raise, helping to raise other people up to a different station in life. Because when we're helping other people, that's when we're at our best. And that is how we grow. And that is what it's all about, man. When we go through life and we look for ways to serve other people, how can I best be useful to other people today? Everything else falls into place. Everything else, man. Um, all the stuff that's happened in my life, I don't pray for this stuff. I'll tell you what I pray for. I, every morning I get up and I say the same prayer, a prayer that I learned when I got into program recovery. I say, God, put in front of me what you need me to do today for you, and let me recognize that when I see it, because I don't want to miss whatever that is. Amen. Yeah. That's it. Man, that's great. That's great prayer. prayer. You know, as we wrap it up, I think something that's worth mentioning here is, is that you actually found Mr. Jackson. Yeah. Recently. Yeah, I did. Yeah, it's you crazy. Found, and where did you find him? So, Mr. Jackson, uh, look, I looked for him, and uh, when I first got out of prison, I didn't know his real name. I just called him Mr. Jackson for right. the sake of the story. The only name I knew him by was Muhammad. These guys go to prison, they convert to Islam, they take on a Muslim name. But I can't go around in the South telling my story just out of prison, saying Muhammad told me this and Muhammad told me that. Right. So I give him the name Mr. Jackson. Everybody likes Mr. Jackson. So I get an inmate from the— from an, I get a letter from an inmate in the Texas Department of Criminal Justice this summer. It has one sentence, no return address. It says, find James Lynn Baker and you find Mr. Jackson. So I go get a private investigator. Yeah. Get a private investigator. Go to Dallas. Um, first thing we found was his criminal record. Matched up everything. In and out of prison all his life. And in 2009, he was in Dallas County Jail for a parole violation. Exactly what he told me he was in there for. This is my guy. But I never got a chance to see my guy again because Mr. Jackson, James Lynn Baker, died May 9th, 2017, opiate overdose. He was a drug addict just like me, but he never wow. got help. So now that I knew who he was, this is what integrity, integrity requires you to do the right thing. I told the private investigator, let's go find his family. So we found his family, dynamic family. He had two sisters that were Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders, but his mother was really the, you know, in his story, it's his mother too. His mother, Bertha Baker, was the first licensed black daycare owner in the city of Dallas. The first daycare license to a black resident went to their mother, who opened up the first black daycare in 1949 out of the home he grew up in. In fact, the home he grew up in is a city landmark in the city of Dallas. It's a protected structure hmm. in Dallas. So, man, I got the private investigator set up a call with his three living sisters, Visha, Von Seal, and Vanessa Baker. And I called them up and I told them the story. And I was like, listen, I need you to understand that your brother impacted at least one life on this planet. And that one life is trying to impact the entire planet with the message he gave me. And I asked him, I said, what high school did y'all go to? And they confirmed what he said. He was from the inner city, Dallas Lincoln. Dallas Lincoln is very inner city, very black, very urban part of Dallas. I said, great. Here's what I want to do. I'm going to put $10,000 a year into a trust the James Lynn Baker II Be a Coffee Bean Scholarship is going to be in that trust. And every year I want one boy or one girl from his high school that grew up in his neighborhood to have a better chance at life through an education because of two men that had this chance encounter in Dallas County Jail in the summer of 2009. And so, man, the scholarship fired out. It's gone public now. And, and actually February 2nd, I get to go speak to Dallas Lincoln High School to the seniors for an assembly Man. to announce the launch of the first scholarship, the James Lynn Baker II Be a Coffee Bean Scholarship. Oh, man. So, yeah, I found That's Mr. Awesome. Jackson, man. Congratulations. Yeah, it's That's really fantastic. cool, man. You know, uh, before we leave here, 
why don't you tell the audience about this new project you got working out that drops in February? Oh man, uh, John Gordon and I we got one last book in the Coffee <laughs> one Bean last series, man. Together. And this is it. This is way bigger than the original coffee bean. It's the the maturing of the coffee bean message because yeah. it takes it from the fact that you know I learned it from Mr. Jackson in Dallas County Jail, and it's gone and it's matured and it's gone into all these different corporations and teams and cultures. And this was the feedback we got from all these people. This is how they applied it. It's how to be a coffee bean, the 111 principles of being a coffee bean. And this is the practical application of the coffee bean message now that it's out in the free world. So it's all these different principles that people have used to make the coffee bean. We put it into one book. comes out February 1st. It's available right now on Amazon, anywhere books are sold, Barnes & Nobles, anywhere books are sold, how to be a coffee bean. You could pre-order now. Pre-order right now. Now, right off your website, too. Absolutely. What's your website? damonwest.org d-a-m-o-n-w-s-t dot o-r-g and where can they find you on socials uh, at damonwest7 twitter instagram same thing at damonwest7 find me there follow me I got a positive message every morning man yeah I can I can attest to that if you're not following him go check him out on those handles make sure you're following him great message great vibes and I uh, just can't thank you enough for being here and joining us today thank you for your time guys I appreciate it man be yeah. a coffee bean you got it absolutely I got one more shot I'm gonna make it one more chance, I'm gonna take it I meant it when I said it, now it's time for me to do it I got one life to live, so I put all into it, yeah